Good evening. Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Midweek Bible Study. Derek Glover here with you, and we are grateful that you're joining us from wherever you might be to continue our study as we near the, the final few weeks of it of how we got the Bible. We've been trying to examine <clears throat> both uh, historically and linguistically how the Bible came to be, how we went from the original writings from the original authors all the way back recording the events of the Old Testament through the recording of the New Testament and the manuscripts and the copies and the translations and all the various ways that those things through all those different languages came into our hands and came to be uh, where we use it today. And we're working through some of the history part now. We've done a little bit of the harder part dealing with languages and, and those sorts of things. And now we're dealing almost exclusively with the history, <clears throat> particularly the history of how the Bible made it from its Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic roots into Latin. And now we're moving into the English language, which is our language predominantly, those of you watching. Uh, and so it matters that the Bible spent centuries locked down in one language controlled by the Roman Catholic Church and how that came to open up into the common language of you and I, English. Uh, and while it exists in many, many other languages throughout the world, it matters to us that it went into English at some point and that it was proliferated through the world and that we have it today. Uh, and we have it with some uh, assurance because we were able to look and compare that it says what it said in the beginning. And so it's really a fascinating journey, but we're dealing with some stories of, of spies and clandestine activity, the attempt to elude the power of the state and of the Catholic Church in locking down the language of the Bible. And so we've been talking about people like William Tyndale, uh, who we'll continue talking about tonight and go to the end of his life, because he was a major contributor as a translator and as a scholar and as a reformer. Remember, this is happening uh, in the time of Martin Luther and in the, in the years following Luther's work, uh, the work of Zwingli, the work of Gutenberg and the printing press. And uh, so translations are already being made in languages like German. But Tyndale uh, was a major contributor to the English language itself. And he was a translator and a scholar, and he is making efforts with the help of the secret society, uh, the, the, the remnant of what John Huss uh, and others began. He's going through that network to try and pass along the English language to, or rather the, the Bible in the English language to Christians who are wanting to read it. I want to make a quick comparison here so that you understand how important William Tyndall was. Um, it was 80 years after the time of William Tyndall that we have uh, the emergence of King James. And he gathered together with him 50 scholars and they spent uh, a great deal of time, in fact, five years working through translating the entire Bible into English. That's how we got the King James Version, the first complete Bible in the English language. Uh, it took them five years to do that translation and that publication. Um, William Tyndall uh, was able to do it in one year and uh, constantly revising, constantly translating. He was on the run, he was in poverty, and it took him only one year to translate the Bible. And along the way, he essentially created the English language. The English language was the, <clears throat> the language of the, uh, in, in our vernacular, we would say it was kind of the country language, the hick language, the redneck language. You know, I'm from the South, and people tend to think that when you speak with a Southern accent, that means you 
somehow lack intellect. But in fact, if you were to listen to people of England, of Great Britain speak at this time, they would sound a lot like the, the folks in the American South. As immigrants came from Scotland and Ireland and, and parts of Wales, and they made their way to the United States, they settled in Appalachia and in the South, and the sound of that language uh, carried with them and was preserved. So Southern English or Appalachian English is very much what the common English sounded like uh, in, in the 1500s or prior to that, but it wasn't considered an accepted language. It had no rules. It, was, it, was very, uh, it varied widely from region to region. William Tyndale helped to standardize English uh, as much as Chaucer, maybe more than Chaucer or Shakespeare or any of those writers or Dunn. Uh, William Tyndale created rules of grammar, uh, created words and definitions and, and idioms and sayings, things we still use today. So he contributed greatly to not only the Bible and its translation, but the English language itself. He had to almost create a whole new language to translate it into and standardize that language so that scripture could be heard, read, and studied. Uh, and he made English an accepted language. And we have to keep that in mind as we get closer and closer to the, the King James Version becoming uh, a reality. Um, as William Tyndale continued to publish and continued to write, he always continued to revise and translate. He often would put an apology to the reader in his printings of the Bible uh, because uh, he knew it was unfinished. And he was always constantly trying to make a word more precise or more understandable. We continue to do that today with our new international versions, our American Standard versions, the English Standard, Revised Standard. There's dozens of different versions all seeking to do the same thing, make the Bible understandable in the language it's being uh, read in or, or being studied in. Um, important in the story of William Tyndale is what we, we talked about last week, where he was nearing the end of what he could do with his work, and he was approached by uh, a bounty hunter, a merchant, um, a mercenary uh, of the Bishop of London, and he double-crossed the Bishop of London by taking the money. The bishop wanted him to purchase all these Bibles from Tyndale and, and so that they could be burned. He wanted to spend this money to, to get rid of it. And so this uh, mercenary upcharged the bishop, gave him some of the Bibles, gave, the money, gave some of the money back to uh, William Tyndale so he could continue his work and pay for the materials and the time it took to do this. So I want to talk about another individual named Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney was a licensed priest. Remember, the church required that you be licensed and ordained and approved uh, in order to preach. He was licensed. He was a, a, a part of the Catholic Church. He preached in England, but very secretly, he was a part of the White Horse Inn. A few weeks ago, we talked about the White Horse Inn as a meeting place for the Lollards, and he was a part of that secret society. He would... Um, <clears throat> He would pass by from his house on the way to the White Horse Inn, a place called the Burning Field. That was where Lollards and reformers who were captured uh, and who would not recant were burned at the stake. Between 1390 and 1550, over 300 Christians were burned at the stake at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and he knew the risk of what he was doing, Thomas Bilney, and he began to work smuggling Tyndale's translations and publications throughout uh, his part of the world. He began to feel guilty about what he was doing, and so he chose to go and offer confession, which is a tradition in the Catholic Church. And by and large, 
confession is supposed to be a safe place. And let me just say as a disclaimer here, I believe that it very much is today. I believe that those who are in positions in the Catholic Church of, uh, of, of some sort of power or uh, we'll call it religious officers, priests, what have you, I believe they take very seriously the, um, uh, the, the confidentiality of the confession booth. But that was not the case at this time. As Bilney confessed to a man named Latimer, uh, Latimer was appalled at what he heard, that he was helping to uh, transmit and disseminate the works of Tyndale. And so he turned him in. He was tortured. He was questioned. He was beaten. He was forced to burn copies of Scripture in public. And when they let him go, he returned immediately to distributing the books. And eventually he was captured again, fearless, uh, to continue the work, and he was put to death in that same burning field in 1531, and there stands a plaque there to him uh, today if you go over there and visit. He held uh, in his hand as he was being killed, being put to death, a book that Tyndale had written. Uh, it was a book about church and state. It was called The Obedience of a Christian Man. We'll come back to that in a minute because it figures prominently into the story we're going to talk about today. So Tyndale was writing books on doctrine. He was writing books on theology, and he was doing this all the while he was translating. And he had, he's in Worms at the time, but he has to flee Worms, and he goes to Marburg. And there he is pursued by both church and state. And we have to understand the relationship between the church and the state at this time and why that matters. So um, Tyndale is pursued by two parties, two parts of the uh, of, of this equation. The church, obviously, the Catholic church, and the state, that is England. Um, the interconnectivity between the church and many, many na nations uh, has to do with the power of the Holy Roman Empire, the power of the church itself. They had become so intertwined in the affairs of state, that was a part of their corruption, but it was also a part of their power. And William Tyndale had managed to anger both sides of that coin. So let's kind of draw the lines here on who these people are and try not to get confused because there's several of them named Thomas, but we'll try to be specific here. So there was Henry VIII, the King of England, and there was Cardinal Wolseley, who was the church official of the, of the time and of that area. Well, Henry uh, wanted a divorce, and we know uh, that story if you've studied history. Uh, Henry VIII was a terrible, despicable man. There were very little, if any, redeeming qualities about his character. Uh, he had many wives, he divorced many wives, uh, and he was always in search of a male heir to his, uh, to, to his name, and he couldn't find one. So he, he wants a divorce. He's ready to divorce, and he wants to marry a woman named Anne Boleyn. So here are the players in this. We have Thomas uh, uh, Cromwell and a man named Thomas Kremner. Uh, they were on the side of King Henry, and these were church leaders uh, who backed Henry in his desire to get a divorce. And on the other side, uh, you had the, the church officials, Cardinal Wolseley and Thomas More, who opposed Henry in his efforts. So there's a battle going on between the church and the state, but both of them don't like William Tyndale, uh, ultimately. So we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, Anne Boleyn uh, had a servant. We don't know her name, but we know that she uh, read, she was uh, literate and, and was reading a book and uh, thought it might be of interest to Miss Boleyn and passed it along to her. And she begins reading this book. And as it turns out, 
That book is a copy of William Tyndale's The Obedience of a Christian Man. And she's reading it and finding interesting things in it that are opening her eyes to ideas of theology and about the church. But she's discovered uh, by a bishop reading the book, and he takes it away, berates her, calls her all sorts of horrible names, and then uh, takes the book away. She complains to Henry, and there's not much that a man won't do for a woman when he's in love. And so Henry sends soldiers to go find the bishop and to get the book back. They recover the book, and Henry now is curious what is so important about this book that they would take it away, and he begins to read it. And his eyes begin to be open. Now, there's probably some uh, personal gain here in his seeing the ideas of reform in the church and seeing someone who is um, kind of attacking the church, that this perhaps might be an ally for him because he's no fan of the church at this point. Uh, and so he is fascinated with the work of, uh, of Tyndale. And so he reaches out to Tyndale and asks for more material, more to read. And Tyndale sends him uh, translated copies of the works of Martin Luther. And he begins to read the words of Luther. Well, Thomas More discovers this fact. And Thomas More wants to debate William Tyndale, but he's gotten smart. He knows if he shows up in public, he will be captured and he'll be put to death. So they debate by correspondence for the next couple of years in order for Tyndale to avoid capture. And during that time, he also finishes uh, copying the Pentateuch, or translating rather, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Remember, this is the first time in history that the first five books of the Old Testament were available in English, and he has finished this translation. It took him some time, but he has to go to get it printed, and he has to go to Hamburg to make that happen, so he boards a ship, and while at sea, the ship is struck by a storm, it wrecks. Tyndale survives, but his manuscript was not. All that work lost. Manuscript uh, is lost in the storm and in the, in the sinking of the ship. So Tyndale survives this um, shipwreck, and he survives to meet two men, Miles Coverdale and John Rogers. And it's in 1531 that those two men assist him in recovering and finishing and recreating this translation and to finish the printing of the Pentateuch in English. And they do that in a place called Antwerp. So they finish the, um, uh, the printing of it, and in, in short order, within the next year, uh, he's able to translate the book of Jonah. And when he publishes the book of Jonah in English, Tyndale, who was not shy, uh, published a dedication in the front of it to the bishops in England and compared them to Nineveh, telling them their days were numbered and that they should repent. So during this time, some of the bishops and some of the religious leaders move to Henry's side, and others stay with Moore and Wolseley in their opposition to King Henry desiring a divorce. Tyndale took neither side and, in fact, wrote very strong words uh, 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 about Henry and his desire for a divorce and his pattern of behavior, and, and he condemns that. And so he's now made enemies of both Henry and of the church. So both sides are after him. And Tyndale knows at this point that his days are numbered. And uh, he meets a man, becomes friends with a man named John Friff. John Friff uh, was uh, one, of the, one of the soldiers, if you will, the foot soldiers for the, the, the Lollards and the Secret Society, carrying and smuggling Bibles. He was once caught smuggling Bibles, but he was not caught with the Bibles. Uh, he was arrested really for vagrancy. Uh, he wasn't someone who had a, an appearance of a scholar or of a working man, 
uh, he, he looked to be homeless. They didn't find the Bible, so they arrested him for vagrancy, and they locked him up. And in this time, they would lock people up, and then in the daytime, they'd put you out in public in the stocks, and that was the entertainment for the passers-by as they hurled insults along with filth and waste and spitting on and insulting these, these poor people who were imprisoned. So while in the stocks, a scholar stands among the crowd hurling insults. And uh, John Friff looks up at this scholar and replies to him in classical Greek. Now, bear in mind, that is not a common language at the time. This was what you would learn in school. These are the words that scholars use. And so Friff answers him in this uh, Greek tongue, and this man hears it and is astounded and realizes he went to school with John Friff. And so they spend the day conversing, they spend the day discussing theology, and this scholar works to have Friff released. He's released, and then Thomas More very quickly, because he thinks, well, here's someone in our uh, area, in our neighborhood, that knows ancient languages. Now, what are they on the lookout for? People with expertise in ancient languages that are translating and disseminating works of scripture in common languages, in new languages. And so More, Thomas More, has him rearrested because he seems to be a person of interest. Thomas Cranmer, uh, on the other side of this, of course, they, the kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so he opposes Wolseley and, and More, and so he, of course, wants to work to have Friff released, and he sends by correspondence to him uh, some advice, tone down your, your, your words, don't be so inflammatory. I'll work to get you out, but if you'll just change your tone, there might be hope for you. So he was in prison, um, and during this time, Henry has Thomas More removed as chancellor, and, and other bishops come to power in Thomas More's place. And by the way, we don't even hear about Thomas More ever again in history. He's removed from his position of power. Henry is done with him, gets rid of him, but other bishops rise in his place, and they begin the work of inquisition, and they go and they question John Friff. And as they question him and talk to him, they actually found him to be pretty favorable. They begin warming to him. They begin to understand him and, and, and are very near the point where they feel like they might have a way out for him to be released until they start talking about the concept and the theology of transubstantiation. Now understand that the Roman Catholic Church believed in this doctrine by which when a priest prayed for the bread and for the wine that was a part of communion, it became the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So you literally had the body and blood of Christ. That was their doctrine. And that was how they, uh, they made it to be such a holy thing that the common person could not partake of it or administer it. Only a priest could pray the prayer. Only a priest could give it to you. And many people were arrested for unauthorized uh, partaking of communion. And so when they asked Friff about his beliefs on transubstantiation, uh, he opposed them. And the words of Cranmer fell on deaf ears because he did not soften his language. And so they had him beaten. And they would knock him to the ground and he would stand up again. And they would knock him to the ground and he would stand up again. He was a man that would not break. He would not go quietly. And so um, after continually trying to offer him a way out by recanting his belief, uh, in opposition to the doctrine of transubstantiation, he was finally put to death in 1532 and um, tragically 
life ended because of his dedication to getting the Bible into the hands of common people in their language. What a tragic thing, and so many like him suffered a similar fate. During this time, Henry decreed that Bibles could be possessed in English. Uh, However, they could not be possessed in the home. They must be possessed in the church. But he did allow that English was acceptable for the Bible to be printed in. And this was uh, transformative at the time. He also worked uh, through Thomas Cranmer to soften the power of the inquisitors, these bishops that would go about questioning and torturing and and even killing uh, reformers. All this time, Tyndale, whose days he feels and understands are numbered, is safe. He's safe in the home of another man. Now, um, the way that the church viewed behavior was that what you did in your home, they did not police. But when you stepped outside of your home, you were now bound by what they called the law of the streets, meaning you were now in public and you were now bound by the laws of the church. So as long as Tyndale stayed in the house that he was staying in, he was safe. They couldn't get to him. They could not violate that space to go and arrest him for something he might be practicing or saying or thinking. And so Tyndale spent um, all of his time continuing to translate, continuing to write, continuing to print. And he spent what free time he had going to the poor parts of town and serving the poor and giving every dime that he had to see that they were fed and that they were provided with scripture. But safe in the home where he was staying, he continued this work, getting into older age now. And uh, he, he continued to remain safe there. But there was a man named Henry Phillips. And he had uh, befriended uh, Tyndale. He would come to the house. The owner of the home was not very trusting of Phillips, but Tyndale seemed to trust him. And so he would come into the home and they would talk. They would discuss. They would share They would trade ideas, but Henry Phillips was an agent of the church, and he was waiting for the right moment to get to Tyndale. And eventually, a day came where Phillips knocked on the door. The owner of the home was away, could not protect Tyndale, and he told Tyndale, I need help. I'm I'm poor. I'm impoverished. I have nothing. And he waited in the courtyard, in the front yard of this house, pacing and worrying, and William Tyndale, with his compassion for the poor, took a step out into the yard, and when he did, he was grabbed by the soldiers, by the agents of the church. They took him and they put him in prison. He stayed in prison for two years, almost two years, where he was given little food uh, in a windowless cell that was cold and damp. He sat for two years in his own filth, starving and wasting away. Prison in the 21st century in the United States and in most Western democracies is pretty nice compared to prisons even today in other parts of the world that will have more people outside of them than they will inside because families line up to provide the food and clothing because you don't get fed when you're in prison in most parts of the world. That's a Western invention. That's an American invention. Everywhere else you have to count on family and outsiders to bring it to you. And so here was William Tyndale wasting away, cold, damp, sick, in his own filth, with very little to eat, for almost two years, until finally he refused to recant, he refused to change his mind, and he was dragged out after being beaten and tortured. In 1536, William Tyndale was put to death. 
A few weeks ago, I mentioned a paraphrased quote of Tyndale where he said that if the Lord spares my life, I will see to it that the, that the boy who pushes the plow will be able to read the word of God, will have the scriptures in his hand. Well, I got to tell you, all things considered about Tyndale's life, he succeeded. He absolutely succeeded. Here is a man and a scholar so convicted by the things that were planted by people like Wycliffe and Huss and, and, and by Luther and the other contemporaries of theirs. Uh, he was so convicted in the reforms that were needed and in the importance of Scripture getting into the hands of the common people that he worked his entire life. He accumulated no wealth of his own. He, he, he gave his life in order to make this a reality to translate, to print, to distribute. And in doing so, he had to standardize an entirely new language. He essentially invented a language that you and I speak so that he could print and distribute scripture to those who needed it. That is the legacy of William Tyndale. And we're a few years away uh, from getting to the work of King James. But if it wasn't for William Tyndale, none of that would have happened. And we should know the name of William Tyndale. We should know the name of Miles Coverdale and John Rogers. We should know the work that these men did to get the Bible into our hands. We have a few weeks left in this, and continuing from here, we're going to get to uh, closer and closer to the production of the King James Bible. We're going to continue following these stories and here are the scriptures, and they're now making their way into the language of, of our language, English, of the common tongue, and it's still an arduous journey that's yet to go, and I hope you'll continue to join us for it in the next few weeks. Thank you so much. I hope to see you all soon, and we hope to see you Sunday morning for our worship service and Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ.